you're slightly squeamish, cover your ears. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. It's funny, you know, I've never seen anybody frame that verse <laughs> from Deuteronomy. Thank you. And hang it on their living room wall. John 3.16, I've seen. Psalm 23. But never the one about crushed testicles. Incidentally, the next verse says that anyone born outside of marriage shall not be admitted. The AV says, bastard, actually. Or any of their descendants to the tenth generation. Well, I'll tell you what. If I took that seriously, it would decimate the number of children that I baptise. The Ethiopian eunuch in the reading from Acts is identified as a court official of the Queen of Ethiopia, who's her highly trusted chancellor, who was converted, we're told, on the road to Gaza. The first Gentile to be baptised, actually. The first Gentile to be baptised in the early church was this Ethiopian eunuch. Until then, the assumption was that the message of Jesus was exclusively for Jews or for people who converted to Judaism first. However, the story's significance, I think, goes far beyond that because a eunuch was actually, you might say, a sexual minority, a person prejudiced against in the context of ancient religion. Yes, eunuchs fell into the category of those whose testicles were crushed or whose penis was cut off. They were banned from the worshipping community. Eunuchs were usually castrated males or men who were impotent, celibate or disinclined from having sex with women. Some were probably gay. Castration was typically carried out on the soon-to-be eunuch without his consent in order that he might perform a special social function. This was common in many societies where they were often employed as court officials or as guardians of the royal harem where they obviously pose no threat. I love this man, don't you? I love this eunuch in today's story. A man on a physical and spiritual journey. He isn't from a Jewish background, yet he senses that Judaism is where to discover the truth about God. So he went to Jerusalem to worship, to learn. What was his visit like? Was he aware that he was an unacceptable person in temple worship by tradition? We don't know that part of the story. Makes me think about Gandhi, though, when he lived in South Africa and considered becoming a Christian and decided to go to church but was barred because of the colour of his skin. Perhaps the Ethiopian eunuch had a similar experience in Jerusalem, excluded from the temple because of his sexuality. Or maybe he simply endured a lot of sideways glances disapproving looks, tut-tuts from temple worshippers. He must have attracted some attention at least, a Gentile, black man, maybe worse still, a gender transgressor. <clears throat> but he wasn't put off. And now on his journey home, he was reading a book that he bought from the temple scroll shop, The Prophecy of Isaiah. Somehow he sensed the different spirit in it. He read about somebody who suffered unjustly yet remained faithful, the perfect servant. 
Who was this man, he wondered. Did Isaiah write about himself or someone else? The nameless African, known in Ethiopian Orthodox tradition as Simeon Bachos, and the, the picture on your service sheet is of uh, the only icon I could find, actually, of him. It's a lovely image, actually. He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He must have uh, identified with these words of Isaiah, with what he read. He, too, was a perfect servant, trusted because he didn't belong within gender binary categories. He wasn't part of the sexual game, yet also an outsider, distinguished by certain patterns of dress, speech, psychological traits, and overall effect. Isaiah's suffering servant was a man cut off, it says in Isaiah. Surely it was no accident that Bacchus was reading that passage. In the story, the Holy Spirit, it says, inspired Philip to travel the wilderness road to Gaza that day, and then to approach Bacchus, who was reading aloud from Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asks. How can I, unless someone guides me? Bacchus replies. Clearly this is a man of culture and education, someone who searched for truth across boundaries, even in a faith tradition where he was an outcast. That must be very hard. A gay woman once said to me, I love you, Dave. I love St. Luke's but how can I possibly identify with an organisation that treats me as an outsider, as second class, where my marriage isn't recognised? I've often wondered what it feels like to face the choice of coming out and facing rejection or, or concealing your true identity and still knowing that you're unacceptable on the inside. I feel for fellow priests, actually, who felt obliged over the years to hide partners away, living celibately, or pretending to at times probably, suffering in silence anyway. <coughs> Maybe Bacchus had already flicked ahead a few pages, or rolled a few sort of pages on in Isaiah, to the passage that we heard a moment ago, where a different message emerges, I'm sure you noticed that, where the prophet contradicts Deuteronomy, where eunuchs and other outcasts are now welcomed into God's house, a place where there is no insider and outsider, but all can feel at home. It was a place for all peoples. <clears throat> other sheep I have who are not of this fold, Jesus said. I must bring them also. Fold. Fold's a very flexible kind of concept, really. People of other faiths of different cultures, different persuasions, different histories, different sexualities, other folds. We call the story in Acts the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, but could it equally be the conversion of Philip, a man steeped in Jewish religious tradition with certain expectations based upon that, yet who was challenged, prompted by the Holy Spirit to cross a boundary, to set aside his tradition, his understanding of scripture. Thank God that same-sex marriage is now legal in this country. And yet why couldn't I conduct the marriage of Mike and John sitting here, or Gary and John? Not all gay partners are called John, I think, but... 
<laughs> these two were. And lots of others who have been and are a part of this community. Why couldn't I conduct their marriages uh, as well or in the same way that I have, and I've counted this, by the way, for the APCM, 150 other couples who I've married at St Luke's over the years, including many of you sitting here in this room today. There's so much that I love about this Church of England, but some things have got to change, and I think this one has to change. We're grown-ups now, in a world come of age, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. It doesn't mean we're mature or better people, but it does mean that we've outgrown certain uh, mentalities, certain expectations. We're seeing things from a more critical point of view than we once did. Surely priests should have the discretion to choose whether or not to conduct same-sex unions, as we do in other matters. It's a devastating outrage, really, that some people of faith presently can make wedding vows before God in a church like this and others can't. Same people, same faith, same love for each other. Makes no sense. Recently, after giving a keynote talk at a conference, <coughs> a woman approached me and said, you won't remember me, Dave, but I heard you preaching at the Dales Bible Week in the 1970s. Oh, my God. Please don't tell me that you've got the recording. <coughs> One reason you won't remember me, she said, is because I was a man then, not a woman. She went on to relate her story of painful rejection in the church as she journeyed toward sexual authenticity. Wow, you've changed, she told me. When I heard that you were a speaker here, I was really worried because of how I remember you. But you're so different now. And, well, that's true. And yet, ironically, my conversion began to occur just around about the time that I would have last seen this person. In 1978, I was a house church leader in Middlesbrough, in the northeast. One of my flock at the time confided that he was about to undergo gender reassignment. We didn't use that terminology at the time. Have a sex change was what we said. Everything in me rebelled against this idea. I reasoned with him, pleaded with him, uh, prayed with him, asked him to accept that God had created him a man, not a woman. Uh, that his healing lay in his mind, not in a sex change. And yet the more I listened to him and followed cautiously as he journeyed from being Paul to becoming Pauline, the more I felt the Holy Spirit saying, climb aboard the chariot. Just climb aboard the chariot. Pauline actually was my Ethiopian eunuch in this respect. I recall having very hurry conversations with colleagues at the time who thought that I was mad to even entertain the idea that someone could, as a Christian, legitimately undertake gender reassignment. And actually, I had my own doubts, but I set out on a journey down a strange road in a stranger's chariot. <clears throat> the lovely woman at the conference that I talked about had bought a copy of the Bad Christian's Manifesto after hearing me speak. The following morning, she said she'd been up half the night reading it with tears of joy. She related how she'd had her struggles with the process of becoming who she really is, but said that reading the book and meeting me had somehow changed things, brought the journey to 
a conclusion within herself, she said. Of all the wonderful feedback that I received at that conference, none got anywhere near to the satisfaction that I got from that particular one. The feminist theologian Elizabeth Schusler-Fiorenza argues that no biblical text that perpetuates violence against women, children or slaves should be accorded the status of divine revelation if we do not want to turn the God of the Bible into a God of violence. Well, I agree. It's a conversation, of course, with many sides to it that needs to be had. I certainly can't for one moment accept as divine revelation a text that forbids eunuchs from entering the assembly of the Lord or any text or interpretation of a text that argues that LGBT people are anything less than full and equal partners in the family of God. Of course I can't. But there's a trajectory in scripture which we see between Deuteronomy, you know, people with crushed testicles can't come in, uh, to Isaiah, where they're being welcomed, and then on to the Acts of the Apostles. Martin Luther King said famously that the, the arc of history is bent towards justice. That's where it's going to move. Equally, I would say the arc of scripture is bent toward grace or inclusion. And the arc extends beyond the text itself into the world of the reader, into our world. The spirit is still calling us to climb into chariots, to take bold steps, to cross boundaries. Paul's claim that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female, must be extended to say neither gay nor straight, neither gendered nor transgendered, for all are one in Christ. The story of the Ethiopian eunuch is a powerful marker on this trajectory. Until then, the Jesus movement was considered to be something exclusively for Jews, but now a Gentile outsider, an African, but also a eunuch is treated as an equal. A couple of chapters later in the Acts, Peter, who against all his better judgment had preached to the Gentile household of Cornelius and saw them respond to his message, declares, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, across all boundaries you might read, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. <clears throat> the first great missionary journey was not by the Apostle Paul, but by the Ethiopian eunuch, a potential patron saint of the modern LGBT community, I would say. The African church was one of the, is one of, one of the oldest Christian communities in the world, was not initiated by white missionaries, but by a black Ethiopian, a eunuch, and all because Philip was prepared to cross boundaries. And so, I wonder where our boundaries are. We've all got them. The foolish thing is to pretend we haven't, to say, I don't have any prejudices. Of course we do. We all have boundaries. We all have limitations. I wonder where ours are. The question is this, in respect to what I'm talking about, why do we still struggle with issues of sexuality 2,000 years later? Why do some Christians still place people into categories of what is or isn't acceptable? Why are gender binaries still so important? What are we afraid of? Why is difference of every kind still so threatening? What a boring world it would be where we had uniformity, where everything was the same, where 
Everyone believed the same thing, subscribed to the same creed, followed the same inclinations, looks the same, behaves the same. God of infinite diversity. You've got the words at the top of your sheet, actually, the introductory words. I want you to respond again. We meet in the presence of God who gathers all to the feast of life. We are all part of the family of grace. Dear friends, whatever the future holds for St. Luke's Church, let us hold fast to the foundations of who we are as a community, to the spiritual values that make us a beacon of hope to many people who don't fit in. But let us also be open to new challenges, new boundaries to cross. Let's be ready to climb aboard some more chariots and find out what God will do. The peace of God be with you. Thank you.